Today, we have Matt Brunig, president of the People's Policy Project, and Oren Cass, president of American Compass, two longtime policy guys. And we're talking about child benefits, how the government can support working families and people who are raising kids, you know? Uh, so I'm going to do a little uh, housekeeping right up front to moderate this sort of debate slash conversation. So, you know, no one's ever perfectly neutral. So I'll just tell you guys my biases up front. I've taken a public stand in favor of the Romney plan, but my goal today is to be as impartial a moderator as possible and let Matt and Oren um, get to the crux of the, the ARGs. Um, and I'm going to begin the conversation just by moderating and directing questions sort of in turn. And then I'll step back and let you guys get into it and just ensure, you know, equal speaking time and all of all of that. Um, I would also, you know, just beget that, you know, I, I'm still hopeful that we can find common ground as self-styled populists. So, you know, are you guys uh, relatively open to changing your minds? You know, we've got maybe like a 1% chance of that happening, I'd say, but are we, we going to get, um, you know, is there a chance of us singing Kumbaya by the end of this? I'm not sure we'll agree on everything, but one thing I am hopeful for is that we can find overlap of policies that both of us would support because I think something is better than nothing. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to, to always if, you know, if a good argument hits me and I'm, I'm not familiar with it and I don't have a good answer to it, then I'm, I'm always open to being persuaded. Awesome. And to help us get in that mindset, I did make a little listicle of some things that I think we have in common. So we all have kids ourselves, right? Yep. Yeah, I have two. Awesome. Uh, we're, I think we're all millennials as well, right? So scary stuff. <laughs> Not sure what millennial counts for at this point, though. I think that just means old guy. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all aging, um, you know, washed up people who, who still like Harry Potter. Uh, we're all small business owners, I believe, or, and I'm not sure how well-funded American compass is, but you know, we're all, we all hung up our shingles, I think in the, the policy world. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's true. Okay. And we're all self-styled populists. And I think we're all happy that Nira's play for OMB just got cratered, right? So we can all raise a toast to that. 100%. We, we might get into it. I, I don't love the term populist, but I, I think it's, it's, potentially an interesting dimension of this discussion. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that's a word that that has a lot of baggage to it. Um, but I just throw it in as a relatively, you know, a directional placeholder. So that could be an interesting you know, way to guide the conversation. So we've got some, we've got so much in common guys, you know, um, we, we can all just get along and let me frame up the history of child benefits in the U.S. as I understand it to make sure that checks out with you guys um, and we're operating from a common sort of context. So the government, you know, has an obvious interest in helping families and people who raise kids. Um, and there have been various proposals over the years, incremental sort of steps forward in the discussion. And it seems to focus on three levers. Uh, so number one, how generous should those benefits be? How much money are we sending out? Number two, who should be eligible to receive the benefits? And number three, how are those benefits going to be delivered and administrated? Is that a fair summary, guys? Uh, yeah, I mean, those are three aspects. I'm sure there are dozens of more if you really start digging in, but those are big, big ones. Yeah. 
Awesome. Okay, so that's a good high-level summary. So my first question is going to be for Oren, because I thought something that you tweeted out earlier this week was a pretty good summary of like the key disagreement at, at stake. Um, so you said, as you published the New York Times op-ed, you separate the debate over child allowance proposals into two separate questions. Number one, should we send more financial help to working families? Check. Number two, should the safety net deliver unconditional cash to the non-working poor? No. So my question for you is, why not? Why not? Well, I guess the starting point to answer that question and, and what's implied by that division is it seems to me there are two fairly different discussions here about sort of what to do about the general trends in the American economy and society in recent decades that I think have really put a lot of strain on families up and down the income spectrum, up, up to a fairly high income level. And, you know, we can debate about exactly what it is. I think the, you know, folks who are earning $300,000 a year and, and still declare themselves middle class are probably a bit out of touch. Um, but but if, if you're thinking about sort of anyone from the, the single minimum wage earner up to, say, you know, $60,000, $70,000 a year, um, and, and similarly correlating to, you know, folks with particularly less than a college education, what you hear from folks, and, and we did a survey on this at American Compass, a huge share say that, that they don't feel like they're living the American dream, um, and, and about half say they don't have as many kids as they want. Um, most often because they don't feel like they can afford to. And, and I think the economic data on what's happened to wages bears this out. Uh, this is probably a point of, of agreement between myself and Matt. Uh, and, and so I think there's a really important policy discussion to be had about should we be really trying to help these folks in a way that historically uh, policy hasn't been focused on helping them, I, I think much to the nation's detriment. Um, and, and so that's kind of bucket one from the tweet that, that gets the check mark that, that I think there's, there's a real case for channeling greater assistance to those folks and, and essentially conceiving of a social compact that says, um, you know, they are doing their part and it's not making ends meet, um, or certainly not as well as it used to, particularly early in life when they're having kids before they're likely to have savings. Uh, it, it makes sense to, uh, to, to give them more support. I, I think there's a second question of how do we approach anti-poverty policy? And, and this is a debate that's obviously been very long running and, and goes through cycles from huge expansions of the welfare state, for instance, in the 60s to the, the 80s and 90s contraction and welfare reform to now a push to sort of find ways to, to expand it and make it much more generous. And, and, and so first, just as a, an analytical point, I, I think these are, are different questions. I think the, the nature of the challenges faced by these two groups um, are, are different in a lot of cases. I think the sort of social and political implications of, of uh, addressing their needs are different. Uh, and, and so I think as a starting point, that doesn't mean the answer has to be different, but it, it means I think we have to have different conversations about it. And, and my view, when, when you get to the, the class of, of folks who are, um, you know, certainly below the poverty line, but importantly, you know, literally have a household where no one is connected to work at all, uh, in my view, the, the, the way to understand the challenges that they're facing and, and the way to craft a safety net that's going to support them 
uh, isn't a matter of just providing them cash so that we can declare them above the poverty line. Uh, it, it should be very different. It should be about making sure we, we meet essential needs, whether that's food, shelter, health care, uh, and so forth. But, but then it should also be about um, making sure that they're actually receiving the, the kinds of supports that, that aren't things you buy with money that are addressing challenges they, they'll frequently have, whether that's uh, related to mental illness or addiction uh, and, and so on and so forth. And, and so I think it's important to think about them differently. And it's important to have a goal at the end of the day that while we're meeting people's needs, we're, we're not blurring the line and saying that the package of support that we provide to someone who's not working starts to not look all that different than what somebody can expect to achieve if they are working. Okay. So just to, some follow-up to, to clarify, do you have, it seems like there are some competing definitions of what non-working means as we look at the data in the policy world. Do you, how, so in the American Compass view, how do you define non-working poor? So we're looking in terms of earned income. Um, and, and I think there's, you know, also a very interesting discussion we might get into about how carers who are not in the labor market at all, at all are surely doing work. Um, but but for the purposes of, of the definition that I have in mind that's tied to, uh, among other things, kind of being connected to and contributing to the broader society, um, having a foot on the economic ladder that could lead to upward mobility, uh, you know, exposing both yourself and your, your families to the norms of the workplace. Um, I, I think actually some connection of the family to the labor market is important. And, and so what you know, what I think is somewhat distinctive about the proposal we've made at American Compass that, that diverges a lot from what conservatives have typically looked at is we've said this shouldn't be about how much you pay in taxes, right? So there are lots of proposals out there that basically say, let's try to refund people of their taxes. Um, and, and I think that's, that's sort of the, the wrong and, and a somewhat arbitrary definition of how much support we might provide someone. Um, we've said, let's just look at how much you're earning and provide a benefit up to that same level. So, you know, the, the kinds of child benefits we're talking about here for, for a family with several kids could easily amount to eight, ten thousand um, $10,000. So we've said that that full benefit should be available to someone who has eight, ten thousand $10,000 in earnings, which, you know, that that's literally one part-time minimum wage job. Um, so, so the goal isn't to maximize hours, get every, you know, all parents in the workforce full-time and taking on second shifts and so on and so forth. Um, but it's to say, you know, first of all, we think it is it is valuable to the individual and the family for the household to have connection to work. And as a matter of, of the model of support that we should be providing for folks, there should be an expectation that, that you sort of have your oar in the water, so to speak, and, and are rowing as well. Okay. And one more follow-up question before we pivot to Matt and, and his context. I've, si I've seen that American Compass has also released data about the preferences of the working class when it comes to the division of labor and participation in the labor market between mothers and fathers. So would you say that it's fair or accurate that your position it stakes a moral claim that it's good for one parent 
um, typically the father to be in the workforce while the mother is able to stay home with the kids? Like, is that, are, are you staking a sort of Institute for Family Studies claim that like that, that's good? Like that's an optimal situation for, for raising good families? Well, we certainly haven't made a distinction on on which parent should be in the labor force if if you're going to have a, a working parent and a stay at home parent. So we the questions we ask ask obviously both men and women if they prefer a situation with a stay at home parent um, or uh, two parents in the workforce. Um, but but we did not ask them if if they thought there should be some norm about which parent stays at home or is in the workforce. Um, in terms of whether we have a preference for two earner families versus families with a stay-at-home parent, you know, I think there's an enormous social value associated with having stay-at-home parents, both for the benefits they provide um, to kids and to the family, and also for the engagement that it allows in the community. And so I think it's something we need to, to recognize the value of, whereas the sort of typical economic analysis these days says, well, the more people you have in the workforce, the higher your GDP is. Um, but but I think ultimately we should be deferring to people's preferences. And so if if a family would prefer to have both parents in the workforce, I don't think it's our place to say, uh, actually, you shouldn't do that. Um, but I think we want to open up the space for families who who do recognize the value in having a parent at home, uh, which as, as the survey data showed is is most families, especially once you get um, out of the upper class, I, I think our policy should be oriented to uh, to helping them achieve that. Okay, thanks. So Matt, over to you. So you've been behind a lot of the drive, and it seems like the rise in considering universal benefits instead of the classic sort of means testing. Why is that a better approach? Well, you know, if you think about the welfare state generally, the way it typically works in most in most countries is we recognize from the outset that, you know, in a capitalist society, the only people who receive income are people who are working and people who own a lot. Um, but about half the population doesn't work or own significant amounts of anything. And so they are locked out of the direct distribution of income in society. And so the typical response to this in developed countries is you say, okay, well, we're going to create a cash benefit for every non-working group of people. And what they'll usually do is they'll slice them up into different groups, right? So if you take the 50% of people who aren't working right now, you'll notice like a big chunk of them are, are old, right? They're just too old to work. Okay, we'll give an old age pension for people over the age of 65 or 66. And then you, you look again and you say, okay, well, also a big chunk of them have a disability, a work-limiting disability. You say, okay, well, so we'll do, a, we'll do a disability benefit for those folks. And then you look again and you say, oh, so a lot of them are students. You know, they're, they're just young kids. They're not working right now. They're in school. And it's like, okay, well, so we'll give them some student benefits, maybe some student loans, keep them, keep them covered during that period. And you keep going. Now, some of them are unemployed. Um, that's actually usually the smallest bucket. Um, but, you know, some of them are unemployed, so we're going to do some unemployment benefits. And then finally, you get to kids. And you say, well, kids don't work. Hell, kids are banned from working, legally <laughs> forbidden to work, um, even if they were able. And... So you, you provide a cash benefit to kids. And the societies that do this the best, I think, are the ones that 
do all of those benefits in a universal way, meaning that they provide uh, benefits to everyone in that group without any look at you know where they live or who they live with or what the incomes of the people they live with are. And this does a number of things. One, it makes it super, super simple and super, super easy to get, which is important, especially if you're trying to reach vulnerable populations who might struggle with bureaucratic hassles. Uh, the other thing is, and th- this is gets, goes very underrated, I think, in the U.S. discourse, is that there's an unfairness in some ways to having someone uh, who works um, having to support different numbers of dependents, right? So at one point when I was a kid, I, I, I was living with my dad uh, briefly, and he had me, and he had the two two kids, and he also had a, a sort of disabled slash unemployed brother living with him. So he's got one income and he's got four four people to stretch it across. And like, that's just kind of tough. Um, whereas if he didn't have any of us, if he didn't have a kid or, or, or disabled brother he was helping, uh, he would be so much better off. And so, but the idea of these benefits is to smooth out those differences, is to say that wherever these non-workers pop up, they're about half the population, wherever they pop up and whatever household they pop in, uh, we're going to keep them covered um, socially, and it'll it'll mix in with whatever uh, labor income or capital income anyone else in their uh, family has. And that's just been proven very, very effective, keeping inequality low, keeping poverty low, and, and I think importantly, to Cass's point, has not proven to be an impediment really whatsoever to high employment rates. In fact, in these um, countries, the social democratic countries that tend to design benefits these ways, their employment rates are much higher, um, not just for women, but even for men. Um, they have higher employment rates, especially in prime age. So, you know, there's just really no, I feel like, no real reason not to do it that way. Um, one thing I would like to point out, just to kind of start engaging with some of um, Oren's points, is I think he's kind of missed the mark a little bit on, on who is working and who isn't working, right? A benefit for children is a benefit for children. It's, it's cash for kids. It's not a benefit for their parents. And so the fact that, um, uh, you know, the fact that a kid isn't working, that's what entitles them to the benefit. It doesn't really matter whether their parents are working or not. I mean, it would it'd be sort of like saying we shouldn't pay disability benefits, to disabled people unless they live with someone who currently has a job or we shouldn't pay benefits to elderly people unless they currently live with people who have have a job kids kids don't have jobs their benefits shouldn't be based on whether the people they live with currently have jobs i think that's just sort of a fundamental a fundamental mistake uh in the way that he's approaching this um but yeah, uh, other than that, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I get why he, he's really interested in work, and uh, but I guess another aspect of this that I would emphasize here is that we know from sort of voluminous research that a good way to kind of increase labor supply across kind of long-term horizons is to make sure that kids don't grow up destitute because that really diminishes their um, intellectual capacities, um, tends to uh, generate higher levels of crime and psychological problems. If you can keep kids like well-fed and well-housed and like well-resourced, you're going to have a lot higher employment over the long run um, than if you don't. So even if we have like a, a sort of uniform fixation on labor um, and getting people working, um, crafting your child benefit in a way that's designed specifically to exclude the poorest kids, that's a really good way for keeping your labor supply lower in the long run. Um, 
but yeah, that's the basic gist okay. of it, I guess. <clears throat> All right, so perfect. So let's let's give it let's give Orin a chance to respond. Um, Orin, your thoughts? Yeah, I guess I'd make a, a few points. Um, you know, a, a couple of them are, are technical. I, I think Matt, I, I like Matt's breakdown of, of the sorts of people who are unemployed, but I, or excuse me, yeah, who, are, who aren't working. But but I feel like there's an awful lot of of fudging in the rundown. I mean, stu- you know, he, he sort of equated student loans as the form of benefit that that we provide to uh, students, which is 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 not a cash benefit to support them as non-workers. Um, you know, the pensions we provide to to the elderly, at least in this country, are explicitly tied to having worked and and paid in, into the system earlier. And you can say that's the wrong way to do it. Um, but but certainly that is that is the structure we've adopted in this country, and so you know I, I think there's a lot more variance in in how we think about these groups than to just say uh, if if somebody's not working we we have cash for them. Um, I think where there's a more interesting conceptual question is with respect to how we think about kids, and I, I think this is probably a, it's it's a long running dividing line between left and right broadly and, and probably informs uh, some of the, the disagreement in, in this issue in particular. Um, but to my mind, the idea that, that children are essentially small disabled people who can't work and therefore should receive a benefit just, just misunderstands the nature of, of, <laughs> of human existence to, to be overly broad about it. Um, but but also of the institution as as a family, you know, I, I don't think we should or can think of children as these these sort of free agents who we send benefits to because they can't work. Um, they are their their parents' responsibility in in both a um, in both the sense of of obligation and and as a practical matter. And and you obviously see this when you try to deliver a benefit to them, which you can't. You you have to give. You have to give the benefit to the parent. It's it's technically a parent allowance, uh, and and so in my mind, the the way we should think about this is not the child as an individual, but but rather the family as a unit, and and what kind of support we want to provide the family. And and it's it, it you know I found Matt's ex- example from his family an, an interesting one, where you know he would say it's it's somewhat unfair to have. Uh, the his father in this case have have more dependents to support. Um, I, I guess I would say that that's a, a somewhat strange definition of fairness. Um, I, I think we rightly ask families to support themselves as family units. Uh, and and then finally, I would just note that per the the sort of proposal that I've described and advocated for, assuming his his father's working, um, I, I I do think we should try to. <laughs> To get more support to that that family, especially to the extent uh, that it has kids. What what I would take issue with is if that's a household where uh, genuinely no one is working at all, uh, is is the right way to address their needs to to just send them enough money to meet their needs anyway, uh, or or is is the the nature of that problem somewhat different? Could I I want to jump in here on a few? Yep, Matt, kind of, over to you. It's yeah. kind of factual points i guess um because i i know i know oren has kind of staked this position that uh through a lot of posts that he's written not just the recent ones that 
you know, in the U.S., when we provide these old age benefits or these disability benefits, you actually have to have worked um, to get them. And that's sort of like how he kind of threads the needle between saying, well, it's okay to give it to them, but not okay to give it to kids. Now, of course, conceptually, it's a little bit weird because, well, kids cannot have worked. That's the nature of being a kid, right? They, they work later. You know, older, older people are too old to work, which means their work is behind them. And younger people are too young to work, so their work is in front of them. So it's a little bit... It was a little bit weird to kind of use that logic and apply it to someone whose whole status is that they're too young to have ever worked. But it's also true that we do give benefits to elderly people and disabled people who don't have sufficient work records and who have never worked at all. If you, if you reach 65 years of age in the U.S. and you haven't hit your 10 years of, of work uh, requirements for Social Security, they go ahead and give you supplemental security income which is an unconditional cash benefit. I think it's $794 a month now. You get that. If you're disabled, it's the same thing. If you haven't met your work requirements for SSDI, they'll put you on SSI. Um, and you can go down the line. There's, there are even benefits for children um, that have never worked before, uh, such as SSI for disabled kids. There are, I think, 1.1 million kids who are on SSI who are under the age of 18. Obviously, they've never worked. It's being paid to their parents uh, without any respect to whether their parents are currently working. Um, in fact, if their parents work, they start to lose some of those benefits, which is not ideal. Um, so those benefits exist. They exist for every group of people, except for, I guess, unemployed people. Um, so, you know, it's the same thing for students. Students get Pell Grants, which are cash benefits that they don't have to have worked for. I, when I was a student, I got Pell Grants. And uh, some people think it's only for tuition. It's not only for tuition because I have my tuition fully uh, covered and I got a Pell Grant. And it was just a nice little check in my account, um, which, which was lovely. Um, so these benefits exist throughout the system. Um, and so I don't know. I just, I just find that a little bit of a weird quirk to kind of say that this stands alone in that. It doesn't. Um, and we see this across across the world as well. In, in the social democratic countries, the way that they design these benefits is they have a, uh, a formula that has basically two kinds of benefits, right? One is based on your prior earnings and one is a basic benefit that you can't go below. Um, now, they don't do that for child benefits because, of course, children never work and have never worked. So it's a flat amount for the kids. But for the other benefits, it's, it's set up that way. And realistically, that's kind of how we're set up, since you do get SSI if you're old or disabled and you don't have an adequate work record. The other thing I'd point out is he, he, the other kind of move he makes here is he says, well, look, you want to conceptualize it as a benefit, benefit for kids, but kids are unique because you can't actually pay a benefit to a kid. It's really paid to the parent. And again, I think this is uh, maybe revealing a little bit of um, inadequate knowledge of the U.S. welfare state. We have benefits that are owed to individuals, but are in fact paid to other individuals. Um, they're called representative payees. You can look it up, the Social Security Administration. There's a whole system for determining who a representative payee should be. But the basic dynamics of representative payees, like the kind of canonical cases, let's say you have a kid, um, not a kid, a 25-year-old uh, son who has um, severe Down syndrome, really is, is not very functional, um, and they are owed a benefit, whether it's SSI or SSDI off their parents' record. And for one reason or another, we don't think it's appropriate you know, to provide that benefit to them. We don't think that they're capable uh, of handling that. That benefit is instead paid to a representative payee, usually their, uh, you know, a caregiver who's usually one of their parents. Um, so it's a 
literally the same thing. It's the exact same thing as that, right? You have a kid, they're not in a situation to really handle the money, so we give it to a representative payee, which is their parent. And the, and the parent is required to be a custodian of that money uh, to, to provide for the kid, just as the representative payee is in the case of a disabled adult uh, who we don't think uh, can handle the money. Um, the last right, thing I'll so say let's, yeah. let's, let's zoom in on that, right? Let's, let's clarify some points here and let's, so let's spend some time on this definition of, of like, what is a kid and can we conceive of this universal benefit as going directly to the kids and solving child poverty, or is it an assist to a working parent, right? So Oren, over to you, let's sort of clarify this, this cosmic definition of what a child is. <laughs> Well, I, I think we agree on on the cosmic definition of a child. We we may disagree on the on the cosmic definition of a family, and uh, you know the the idea of creating essentially a a representative payee structure for a child allowance that that says the money is going to a household, um, but but must essentially be spent you know in for the benefit of the kid. I, is sort of interesting as a as a legal structure. I'm I'm not sure if Matt's actually proposing that. Um, actually, let me pause. Matt, are are you proposing that a child allowance actually use a sort of representative payee legal structure, or are you just using it as an analogy? Yeah, well, as it's implemented through the Social Security Act uh, or the Social Security Administration, which uh, you know is the Romney plan and your plan as well, there is the question of who does the money go to, right? Like even in your plan, like. Which account do you put it in? And as it is, the Social Security Administration has rules for that that call the representative payee rules. They use it. They use those rules already, not only for SSI for disabled kids, but also for child's insurance, which are mostly paid to people whose parents have died. Um, like Paul Ryan was on that benefit. For some reason, I always think that's the Paul Ryan benefit. Uh, he got that when his uh, father died, or maybe it was mother. I don't remember. Um, and it's just a bureaucratic way of like, essentially, which parents, which parent do we put the money in, right? Um, so I, you know, that's a kind of maybe jarring word, but it gets at the basic idea of like you're gonna have to figure out which account to put it in, and they, they have rules for this already for the benefits they pay to kids. So. Sure. Why wouldn't you just adopt those rules, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. In, in in designing our program, this is this is sort of something we looked at, and and you can kind of imagine, particularly in in the you know fraught edge cases of of custody disputes and so forth. Um, there's there's a challenge here, but but regardless of whose plan you're talking about, as sort of as you alluded to it, there's the same problem, and and so you have to have that assignment to to whose account um, to whose account the money goes into, and so I, I think the you know the the question here isn't can you do this? I think you know as as we've sort of gone through these different examples, and, and obviously as the international context shows, you you can do this. There there isn't an administrative challenge. the The question is is should you do this? And and so again, here this is where I I come back to this distinction between um, households that that are working and connected to the workforce, and and there I think Matt and I are in agreement that that we should try to do this sort of thing um, versus what what is a very small set of households that are are disconnected from the workforce entirely, and and again in in at least in in our American Compass proposal, 
disconnected for a significant period of time. I mean, one of the things that that we emphasize in our proposal is this isn't a work requirement where we sort of, you know, we're checking in on you every week. And, and if you lose your job, the, the benefit suddenly goes away as well. I, I think that'd be very counterproductive. Our proposal is, is to look back at the prior year and, and essentially ask, you know, over the course of the entire year, were did, did you earn at least a, a, a fairly minimal amount of income? And if so, then then you're fully paid in for, for receiving the benefit this whole year, even if you lose your benefit during the even if you lose your job during the year. So um so so again, I think the the, the place where Matt and I are, are really disagreeing is on the question of this 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 quite small subset of the population um, for for which you have a household that 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 truly is disconnected over the longer run from from the workforce uh, entirely and and the question is what do you want to do in that situation and you know as as I've underscored repeatedly my, my suggestion is not that we shouldn't help those people or or that you know we, we need to get tougher on them um, I you know I oppose work requirements in in snap I, I think that should be an, an unconditional benefit I oppose work requirements in Medicaid um, I I support CCDF and and think uh, you know we should have a additional programs and, and support that that help move people into the workforce. Um, but I don't think that that refusing to make any distinction between households that are in fact engaged in supporting themselves and those that for whatever reason are not, um, I, I don't think we should we should be nervous about making that distinction. I think it's actually very important uh, to make that distinction and, and that we should want to be saying families have an obligation to be working toward their own support. And that's something that we value and, and treat differently than and we treat a situation where they're not doing that. So I would agree that this is the, the crux of the debate. So let's drill down on this a little bit. So like, Orin, it seems like a counter argument that presents itself, at least in the popular sort of mid-brow debate around this is the definition of people who are, as you put it, completely disconnected from the workforce. And I understand that we're having a highbrow, you know, educated, polite conversation about this, but it is, it's really striking me as reminiscent of the whole welfare reform rhetoric about, you know, what are the politicians going to take to the street who, you know, whose policy people are listening to this, it's going to be about welfare queens. It's going to be about generational welfare and all of the, the, the stuff that goes along with that. Right. But I, it seems like there's a growing amount of data that suggests that there isn't really anyone who is disconnected from work. And, but we've, we've got this alternative sort of the system definition of entering the workforce and how the official channels capture that, judge it, measure it, right? So to me, it's a, we've got a little bit of a dissonance here between that, that sort of traditional focus on, okay, we want to have a pipeline between this subset of people who we think from the measurements we have are completely absent from the workforce and are like this generational underclass of, of uh, poor people. 
And we want to nudge them to work. We want to get them into the system, right? But then we've got this whole other conversation going on right now about the once and future worker and about the massive industrial revolution we're sort of living through right now with the changing definition of work. So how are you guys going to respond to the argument that we don't really do a good job in the U.S. today of being able to to laser in and know anyone's situation about how they're they're relating to the workforce and target this stuff in a way that achieves the objectives that you want, Oren? Well, I mean, there's a very technical question here of how do you measure income? And, and this is something that we actually looked at a bunch for, for purposes of the proposal and, um, and, and have actually then solicited further comment from others on. You know, frankly, it's part of the reason we prefer to run this out of the Social Security Administration and not the IRS, because I think the sort of the, the Social Security wage base, which which does its best to keep track of not just your typical 40 hour a week job, um, but, but also a lot of other kinds of, um, of income is the right one. And, and I think as work evolves for, for programs we already have, we're going to have to do a better job of, of keeping track of that and, and understanding what income people are earning. So, so I'm certainly supportive of having a very broad definition and, and understanding of earned income, and, and by the way, conversely, excluding capital income from, from the calculation. Um, but, but it strikes me, you know, I, I, I like the way you put it, Tim, and, and this is what I find to be sort of a, a paradox or, or contradiction in, in the opposing case, is, is that there are kind of two worlds here. Either you tell me this group that I'm supposedly concerned about is this political fiction and doesn't really exist, in which case I'd say, well, that's great. Then, <laughs> then there's no problem with my proposal. Everybody's going to get the benefit. Um, or you acknowledge that there actually is a population here that um, that is disconnected from the workforce and that we need to be concerned about. In which I'd say, in, in which case I'd say, well, I'm glad that we are identifying that group, but let's talk about how we want we want to help that group and. The, the one other thing I would then say is, you know, are there people who are going to be talking about welfare queens and, and the, you know, the, the long-term underclass and so forth? I, I suppose maybe there are, there are plenty of folks on my side and, and, and Matt's side who I'm, I'm sure we would not want to associate with, with the rhetoric of, but that's not, that's not the concern I'm focused on. The, the concern I'm focused on is that if you have a household that is truly disconnected from work, I would actually take the opposite view, which is I, I suspect there probably is a real problem there. I mean, a lot of the times I time I suspect it's going to be either addiction or mental health related. You know, certainly when we look at 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 homeless populations, the share of, of homelessness that's attributed to to those types of issues is is very high. Uh, and and so in those cases, the I don't think the correct answer is to just say, well, we just we give them money to get them above the poverty line. Um, I, I think the correct answer is to have programs that actually try to address those problems. Uh, and 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 so that's that's again, I think we come back to this dichotomy of 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 what is this non-working population? And and if it doesn't exist, fine. But but if it does, then then I think we need anti-poverty policy that that actually tries to 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 take it on directly. 
The I mean, Matt, yeah. Matt, so over to you. I think it's worth you know again. I I think maybe it's helpful to cut it up into different um, levels, right? So on the individual level, right, we know who the non-working population is. It's almost all children, elderly people, disabled people, uh, and students. Uh, and then you have a smattering of unemployed people and people who are home caregivers. Um, who, as far as I, I understand, within the kind of cast and even the kind of consensus conservative view, caregivers are okay as long as they there's someone also in their household who works. If if that person dies, then now they're bad, um, and they should uh, they need to get out to work. Um, we had that on the individual level. That much is clear. And so, like, I, you know, I always feel like, are you disconnected for work? I can't tell you anyone in my life who's more disconnected from work than my children. They're completely disconnected from work. I cannot even get them to clean up the playroom. It's a disaster, right? Um, so, on the individual level, that, that's clear enough. But what CAST then does, and conservatives do this more generally, is they try to then move out to, like, the family unit level and, and say, well... It really depends on whether someone inside the household is working or not. And then at that point, for whatever reason, the, the people who are, are not working for legitimate reasons like children, those benefits should also be cut off. Um, except that he doesn't then apply that reasoning to any other benefit, right? So it's completely possible for uh, uh, an elderly uh, person who's receiving old age pension to live with someone who's... 50 years old and able-bodied should be working, but isn't. And we don't say, well, we should cut off that old age pension because look at that. They're a non-working household. They've got no one in their household who's working and they've even got an able-bodied 50-year-old who could work, but isn't. Cass would not then come in and say, well, we should cut that off. And he can't say, well, that person worked for it because again, we go back to SSI. The kid, <laughs> That elderly person could be on SSI and I don't think Cass wants to say we should cut off SSI for that person. Um, and the, the same thing for any other benefit, right? Someone could be receiving unemployment benefits. In that case, obviously, maybe no one in their household is working. Someone could be receiving disability benefits, dis disabled SSI. Maybe they have non-disabled people in their household who could work, but they're not. Does cast then say, well, we should cut off that disability benefit in order to try to, to force out that person they're living with? I, I think when you start moving to that family level, it gets very weird. Um, and to apply that reasoning only to child benefits and no other benefits is even weirder. Um, if I mean, like I said before, the, the case for child benefits is the easiest you can make because it's illegal for kids to work. <laughs> um, aside from that, you know, and the other thing is, I mean, we can make the same point uh, even for labor income, right? Uh, we don't think of, uh, for whatever reason, we don't think of labor income as an income program, but I mean, we could. <laughs> it's the largest income program in the country, I think, in excess of, what, $12 trillion a year. Um, but people who have labor income sometimes work with people who don't, or sometimes live with people who don't, who maybe should be working. Uh, I mean, I know people like this who they they work, they receive labor income, and they have, you know, some, some lazy uh, freeloading adult kids. <laughs> That's a thing, right? And those kids need to go out and work, but they're not. And so maybe we should cut off the labor income of their parents because that's enabling the kid not to work, isn't it? Right? We don't do that for any other income. It only happens when we start thinking about children. And I, I just find that very strange. The last thing I would point out here is, and, and, and these are really, I guess, questions for Orrin, and I wonder what he would think about these cases because, you know, when people start thinking about child benefits, they always have a kind of conception of where kids live, right? Well, with a kid, and then they have a parent who's maybe, and maybe they have two parents. And, but in fact, kids live in all sorts of households. And so what about a kid who lives with their grandparents? 
Um, both the grandparents are retired. They're receiving um, Social Security. Um, should that kid receive a child benefit under Oren's plan? No, they shouldn't. Um, under my plan, yes. What if a kid is living with disabled parents? They have very disabled parents. They've been determined to be disabled by the Social Security Administration receiving SSDI or, or SSI. They don't work. Should those kids receive benefits? Oren says no. I say yes. Right? I mean, you can go down the line. I think this gets to the point you were making, um, Tim, about the the multiplicity of where people live. And you, when you start kind of trying to pigeonhole a specific family model that you have in your mind, you actually start missing all sorts of kids. Like there are millions of kids who live with their retired grandparents, millions of kids that lived with disabled parents. And what are we going to do? We start making exceptions for each one of them. You know, I mean, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should just toss that over to Oren. Like does, does he think that a kid who lives with their, that the grandparents, that that kid shouldn't receive benefits? Well, I think, you know, the grandparent situation in particular is is a fairly easy one to address and, and comes down to the question of how you define uh, income to begin with, right? So if you said particularly actual social security as an earned pension, you know, obviously there are already huge debates about the extent to which that should be taxable as income. Um, and, and so if you want to say, well, in that situation, that is sort of the elderly equivalent of what we have as income. Uh, then, then you can do that, and and then that household does have income. So, not you know, earnings. There, there are though. ways. If your plan is if, earnings, well, this is exactly what we just talked about: is how are you going to define what's what's in the income bucket? Um, and and so I, you know, I'll be the first to admit there are all sorts of edge cases that that you have to think about how to address. I think one thing that frustrates me somewhat about these debates is that folks on the left get you know, extremely angry anytime somebody sort of talks about a scenario where you have people who could or should be working and aren't. And, and that's, you know, welfare queenism, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, a huge part of the, the the case you then get from the left of center is, is then dependent on kind of constructing alternative hypotheticals. Well, what if you have this single mother who wants to go back to college and she needs to earn these kinds of credits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, those folks exist too, but I think when you're designing policy for the country, you actually, you have to engage in line drawing. And, 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 and I want to sort of extend that in two directions. One is coming back to this question of, of kids, which uh, it's fascinating the extent to which Matt and I just not only disagree, but sort of have, have trouble engaging on, on how we talk about this because we're starting from such different points to me, it's just extremely obvious that kids are a different group from these other ones because we as a society define kids as people who have others who are responsible for them. That is, we are comfortable saying, no, you as a child, you in a sense belong to someone. You, you have a parent who is obligated and responsible for providing for you. Uh, we don't say that, for instance, about the elderly. Now, we there's used a very to. interesting. We well, used that's to. exactly right. So, I was so there's an interesting discussion. You could say Social Security severed that bond. Once upon a time, we would have said the elderly's children uh, are are responsible for them, and that's who takes care of them in old age. And or of your disabled other... relatives, or your unemployed relatives. I mean, all of them. All the categories sure. work so, that way. 
So, so there are other, there are cultures in which among other things you still act, that responsibility is, is certainly culturally, if not even legally still assigned to caring for the elderly. Uh, we said, and, and this is a, a signal implication of social security. We said, no, we are going to take that on instead as a society. Um, now, mostly through an actual program that expects people to pick to have paid in, but as Matt acknowledges also, or excuse me, as Matt points out, you know, also in cases even where they haven't fully paid in, um, we are going to take that on. And I, I think this is really at the core of a lot of this is, do we want to say the same thing about kids? Do we want to say, uh, actually, we've decided that this notion that par- parents are fundamentally responsible in, in a non-negotiable, um, pre-market, pre-government way uh, for caring for and raising kids? Or do we actually want to step in and say, you know, we, we like when parents do that, but actually we're kind of declaring this the responsibility of, of the society or the state. And my view is very strongly that we don't want to do that. Uh, and, and that preserving and in fact, finding ways to, to strengthen and, and reinforce that relationship is, uh, is, is incredibly important, uh, both generally and, and given trends uh, in, in our society. And, and so certainly something that informs my approach to, to this sort of policymaking is, is concern for, for how we conceive of that exact relationship. Um, the, the second thing I, I'll say, and I just want to make this point briefly, because Matt, I, I think, kind of highlighted when he said, well, you know, you have, we have all sorts of other relatives out there and so forth, is that I do think it's important to have this discussion in the context of all of the other forms of support that exist in a society. Um, I, I think it's it's very frustrating for me anyway, to see this assumption that there's sort of, okay, well, if you know, if if the parent can't provide the necessary support, then we either need a child allowance or we're going to have starvation. Um, you know, Matt has very directly accused me of of thinking that we should be starving kids, and the reality is that that's that's not what happens. Um, there there are an enormous number of other supports. There are extended family, there are religious institutions, there are other forms of community support all of which have a role to play in this as well. And, and all of which, though imperfect, in many cases do a very good job. And I think it is good that they exist. And if we want them to exist, we have to have a job for them to do. And so the vision that says, not only are we going to cut the parents out as unnecessary, um, but we're also going to dismiss and ignore every other institution in society because we, we must have the central government um, distributing enough money to everybody at all times, I think just sends us it, it is a misunderstanding of how the world in fact works and and pushes us in a direction that that makes things worse, not better. now the the idea that we should impoverish some people so that charitably minded people have something to do, which just strikes me as very strange, and also, again, would be applicable to any other group of people. Now, one thing I'd like to point out here is, the shifting of the argument here between saying, well, it's important we need to get people out working. And then when you kind of push them on that and you're like, well, wait a minute, don't a lot of people receive benefits when their relatives don't work, when maybe they should and so on. Then we get a shift into saying, 
Well, I want to say children are different. Children are different. Children are kind of like appendages of the parents, of course, unless maybe grandma takes care of them or maybe their parents die or, may, you know, go on and on. Maybe they've been uh, adopted. Children are kind of appendages of their parents, and so we want to treat them very differently. And so to take care of their income needs on a social level, uh, that would really sever that tie. And then you say, okay, very interesting. That's actually an argument against all the child benefits. That's an argument against Oren's own proposal, right? He's also severing the link between a parent's earnings and how much income is available for the child. He's severing it for, what, 95% of households? And he's, he's, he's bravely and valiantly, he's, he's, he's aggressive and happy about how he's severing it. He starts the whole debate off saying, I'm unlike those other conservatives who only want to try to like kick back the taxes parents pay back to the parents. No, I'm going beyond that, right? So his, his whole project is to sever that link for everyone except for poor kids. When it comes to poor kids, then that link is super, super, super important. And only, uh, you know, labor income should suffice uh, for those kids. But if you get above that threshold, now oh, the whole society can come in and kick in four, $5,000 a year to you. I just, you know, it just doesn't add up. And I think, like, it just seems very under-theorized and very kind of moving back and forth between different kinds of arguments. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's it's a little bit pedantic to say that if if you're providing any support to a household, then you've severed the link. Um, I, I think obviously correlating the uh, the the support you might provide to the family having also been working itself is is obviously very important here and and ensures that that link isn't severed. I I also think to your your point about sort of under theorization, you know, this probably gets to another kind of core disagreement of ours, which is what is a well theorized conception of public policy? I, you know, in, in, in listening to uh, your sort of analysis, I think it's, it's obviously exceptionally well theorized in a sort of uh, formal technical sense. Um, but then I think it's incredibly under theorized as it um, as it relates to how people actually think about and understand the world and their relationships to each other, and 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 both of those things are important. We have to we have to do both. We have to have something that is coherent in how it's structured to for for the technocratic analysis, but we also have to have something that's coherent in how it's structured for people actually living in the society. And, you know, I, I think I'm always drawn to, to Jonathan Haidt's work on this point, kind of contrasting the way liberals and conservatives approach public policy. And, and, and his, I think, very good point that, that liberals bring, you know, a, a very important emphasis to the table on just saying, look, there are people in need and we should care for them. Um, but but conservatives also bringing a very important point to the table and saying, look, for, for our cooperative society to function, we actually need to remember there are values here besides just um, giving everybody what we think they need. And and how how public policy in particular acts needs to, to be considerate of and, and responsive to those things as well. And so, for instance, this principle that look, if you are working and trying to support your family, um, 
we think we should, you know, we, we want to find a way to, to contribute to that as different from, look, this household is not working to support itself at all. We probably have a different attitude toward that. <laughs> that's, that's not an under theorized distinction. That's, that is a, a core to human nature distinction that we need to be attentive to, you know, and, and, and Matt, I, I think it's one you're aware of as well. I mean, even in, in pitching your, your family fun pack, you've sort of emphasized the point that, you know, the, the, the parent should be at least working to support the, themselves, even if we're, you know, wanting to, to address the needs of, of the kid. Yeah, and well, I think let, uh, for for certain me. individuals um, who are working age, able-bodied, uh, non-students, uh, you know, job seeking uh, is important. Um, now, if they can't find a job, I think they should receive a benefit. But I think you can sever that from the kid. Um, and I, but I would like to add, and I'll, I'll let you add, shift it, Tim. But I just want to one little bit. So the the move from I, I see Warren is kind of saying like okay yeah very interesting like theory everything kind of checks out in a kind of like logical sense but we need to be more realistic about the practice of human beings and relationships and all the rest of it and you know for our cooperative society and for the relations and the ties and you know Jonathan Haidt type stuff uh, you know this child allowance that could be paid even to uh, kids whose parents uh, are not working for whatever reason maybe they're in school maybe they're disabled maybe they're uh, loafers uh, that that would sever that but I think if we're going to now shift into reality and outside of abstract theory if we're going to go into the reality game then at that point we need to start moving into other countries because that's reality go up to Canada, they have a child allowance that goes to kids regardless of their parents' work. I don't know too much about their social fabric, but from a distance, it seems fine. Same thing in Germany, same thing in France, same thing in the United Kingdom, same thing in Finland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Belgium, on and on down the line. Uh, you know, those are not ideal countries, but I, I would say they're, you know, not any less, you know, not any more problematic than we are vis-a-vis family and connections and all this sort of more squishy stuff right the the weird thing is not the person like in a reality sense the weird thing is not someone saying yeah child benefits should go to the poorest kids as well that's not weird that's normal that's every other country pretty much in the developed world the weird thing is cast saying no we're going to make a single a singular exception for those people that puts him very at odds with the rest of the world and the rest of the world seems just as like they seem to be getting along. The families seem okay. You know, like what's the big deal? All right. So let me jump in here. And because we keep circling back to this, this, this pendulum swinging between like the technical apparatus of how we're going to design our programs and the, our moral worldviews about this, the nature of the family and the nature of work. And these moral claims that we can't that we can't avoid. We can't just get into the technocratic aspect of it. And we're going to have to deal with this. So let me jump in as sort of carving out this sort of economically populist, but but you know pro sort of the faith the faith based social fabric layer of of mediating Robert Putnam style institutions that at the SPC right. So. You know, and I was just in prep, you know, or, and it's funny thinking about the the language and the, all of the aesthetics and things that go into, you know, the, the impossibility of communicating across people who begin from left personalities and right personalities in the moral language you speak. 
as prep for this, I was just listening to Matt on a, another podcast last week where you, you have all these radical leftists talking about how if the state can't raise functioning families, then that's, you know, what kind of civilization and core fabric do we have, right? Which is, which is common ground, I think, with what you're talking about, about the value of an intact family, right? And so if, if we look at the discourse in sort of right of center family discourse, we seem to have this consensus of over the last hundred years, the, the breakdown of the quote unquote traditional family and all of these structures, right? And that's the sort of situation we're dealing with today. So I guess like I come back to this, this gap between dealing with and trying to nudge in favor of the ideal versus dealing with the specific situation that we're in today. And like, it seems like the approach of trying to means test it and apply the specific policy nudges at the specific points along this life cycle is the approach that's been the dominant bipartisan approach to public policy for the last 50, 100 years. And I think we all share a consensus on this call that we're doing a super shitty job, right? Like the the administrative class, the the ruling class, right, is is leaving behind the American worker, all of these people. So like how how regardless or not, like maybe means testing is the right approach if we could if we could do it. But like my question for you guys is can we effectively means test? Can like the American administrative state as we currently have it do that effectively? And and what does the data as you guys see it support that one way or another? So Oren, let, let's let's start with you on that. Well, it, it depends partly on what you mean by effectively, right? I mean, if if you mean can you know can can the systems apply a, a policy proposal? Uh, in in a lot of cases, sure. If can can we def, can we design policies that actually would work? Um, is is obviously a harder question. Um, but but uh, you know, I I do think it's imp- important in that context to to ask sort of what has the lesson been from say the last 50 years. And, and this is probably another point of, of a significant disagreement between me and Matt. You know, I look at sort of the history of the war on poverty and see kind of a, a failure that, that we're at risk of just kind of running into and repeating. And, and what I mean by that is it, it's fascinating if you look at the actual data on on poverty rate for households with children, you know what you see is for you know 1965, uh, it's it's at about 16 percent, and you know all these great society programs come in and it immediately falls, drops drops five points in in five years, and and everybody's thrilled presumably. Uh, you, you fast forward to 1996 at the time of welfare reform, and and it's right back up. It's actually it's actually higher than it was in 1965. Uh, now, welfare reform happens. Uh, Matt would tell you it's a catastrophe. Uh, 2019, it's dropped another five points. So, what was happening there? The the interesting thing that was happening is. 
that on its own terms, the Great Society programs worked. In other words, if you focus in on a group like single mothers, poverty rate for, for families with, with a single mother actually fell steadily throughout the period I just described to you. The problem is that whereas in those initial few years, you got no increase in the rate of single motherhood, and so you get the big poverty drop, over the ensuing decades, families with single mother more than double uh, as, as a share of all households. And so even though you're helping them, you, you also have so many more of them. Now, once you do welfare reform, and I'm not saying welfare reform is entirely the cause of this, the, the increase in the rate of single motherhood stops. And so now you actually get the decline in, in the overall poverty rate again. And, and, and the, the reason I'm sort of belaboring this story and the data is, again, not to say, well, as you can see, X exactly caused Y and then you know Z exactly caused the opposite of Y. It's to say that this is a lot harder than just, well, if you give resources to people who need resources, you solve the problem. I, I don't think it's at all possible to look at the story of our approach to anti-poverty policy and say that that's happened. And, and that's why I say, whereas when, when we look at what we want to do to support families that, that are working, I think there's a lot to do. I'm very skeptical of this idea that, well, this is just merely a case of um, we need to just send everybody money. And if you don't, then you hate the poor or, or are trying to impoverish them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I want to if we want to have a long fight about what the data series are. Uh, I mean, one thing I, w- I will just point out is the drop from the war on poverty, at least as was measured in the official um, poverty metric, was largely driven by the decline in elderly poverty because um, they just jacked up Social Security benefits. And well, that was so that was just households with children. Right. So the overall rate went down primarily because of that, because of the elderly thing. Um which I don't know. I look at it and I say, that looks like a good model. <laughs> let's, let's copy it in other contexts. Um, but I think we can all agree that AFDC was a weirdly designed program. Um, I look at AFDC and you know what's funny? I kind of look at it and I think, you know, it really makes sense if you think about the way that we have Social Security and we have SSI, right? Social Security is for elderly people and disabled people with a certain work record. And um, then if not, you, you get SSI. And AFDC was sort of like the same kind of basic idea, but for widows, because we have a program for widows called Survivor's Insurance, but it's only if, if the dad, you know, had like died, uh, had had a certain work record. And if he didn't, you, you would kick on to AFDC. That was like the initial idea of it. And it turned out to be a little bit like ill-fitting because at the time, of course, you would say, well, widows shouldn't work. Um, but But now we don't really have that same view. But we should have just gotten rid of AFDC with all of its benefit traps and put in a child allowance. That would have been quite successful um, as judged by any other country. I mean, what's what's really remarkable, if you look across the world um, in these countries that have benefits like these, like really robust benefits, like Finland is a good example. I The family fund pack, literally, basically, I just copied Finland. I mean, almost word for word, their welfare state. If you look at their child poverty rates, Damn it, Matt. I thought you put a lot of work into that thing. No, no. It was a little bit of A lot of, of work into the graphical design. It looks amazing. <laughs> yes. No, John Both White. of your websites are beautiful, John but I like White. that you're just stealing the policy papers from other countries. Yeah, yeah. No, they have a brochure that looks almost exactly like that. Um, <laughs> and um, their child poverty rate, if you look at the market distribution of income, is actually higher than our child poverty rate. 
But if you look at the disposable distribution of income, it's super, super low. It's like 4% or something, whereas ours is like around 20% using the relative measure. Um, so, you know, I don't know. It, it tends to be pretty pretty successful. The other, But I mean, I, I don't want to sit here and sing the praise of the war on poverty outside of the old age pension increase. The war on poverty was, I would say, pretty underwhelming. Well, and, and Medicare, um, you know, but Medicare doesn't show up in poverty stats because it's not money. Um, same for Medicaid. Other than that, you know, the emphasis on the war on poverty, if you actually look at it, was was very much in a Cassian emphasis on promoting uh, self-sustainability through getting people work training and get the, get them back into work. That that was the emphasis of the of the war on poverty. Um, and you know, I think that was a mistake. I should I think they should have gone full full social democracy and and been able to get the low poverty rates that they get in those countries, which is not driven, you know, primarily by, you know, differences in the distribution of market income, though they they do differ a lot uh, there, but primarily due to differences in the welfare state because like i said most poor people they don't work anyway so <laughs> you know you change the distribution of labor income or capital aid kind of doesn't really matter for those folks it's really the welfare state is a big thing for them um <laughs> so i i want to i, I want to come back to i just saying matt just said about how you know ssi is actually sort of a, an interesting analog to afdc um which, which is just funny because SSI was just the example he was giving of, of, of the kind of benefit that we, that we have for the elderly that's not tied to work, right? So if, if, if we say, well, you know, we need this different program for each, um, each, each category of people, then, then you would imagine that the category for, you know, the, the program for children might look something like AFDC, now I, I don't know if Matt was around in the 1960s if he would have been you know pounding the table for for LBJ's program, but I, I think we should at least have the humility to recognize that a lot of folks like Matt were pounding the table for for LBJ's program, and and the result was not what they wanted it to be. Um, and you know the I think you know Matt's been been emphasizing the the cross country examples and and I think that's definitely an, an important and valid point. The the thing that I would look at though is I mean especially when you're talking about a place like Finland, um, but but a lot of the social democracies generally is that yes they they as you say if if you give money to to these folks then you will see that the poverty rate after having given them the money is lower. Um, but if you look at something like their marriage rates or, or their fertility rates, um, those, those things are, I would say, catastrophically low. Um, well, or, you know, our, ours are at that level now as well. So <laughs> ours is falling. It is, it is, it is not, uh, Sweden's as, got us. Sweden's got us on fertility at this point. That's how far it's well, falling. But what about, so let's, but Hungary is an interesting example here. And one that, you know, is, is enjoying a sort of, uh, catwalk, uh, sexy moment in the, in the post-liberal, right. They've got a child, child allowance and it seems to be moving the fertility rates. So I guess like, you know, it, it seems, and I want to go back, I, I want to touch on a point that we haven't really brought up yet, but like the political dimension here in terms of the simplicity versus the complexity model, when trying to get any of this across the line, right? And so it seems like we've got in this moment as American Compass and others are trying to, you know, uh, ostensibly carve out what post-Trump 
post-libertarian conservatism is going to look like. Um, you've got the Romney plan, which has the benefit of being very simple to explain to a voter. Um, and it seems like these checks, as we've seen from the COVID relief, have been very, very popular across all of the, these different constituencies. So Romney releases this plan, and it seems like the left, it, you know, and the and the populist left reacts pretty positively um, and prefers it to sort of the the milk toast corporate Biden plan. And right when we could get this sort of collaborative coalitional moment to try and bang around about it, we have some infighting on the right. Um, why not, what is the political calculus here, the political element to, to trying to forge something that we can actually get done, right? So uh, how are you guys gonna reckon with the simplicity argument and sort of advocating for these proposals? Well, you know, oh, go ahead, Matt. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the advanced monthly refundable tax credit that's based on annualized variables is a mess. Uh, now, Oren's plan is a lot simpler than Biden's plan. Um, it's not quite as simple as Romney's plan, and none of them are as simple as mine, of course. Um, so, uh, you know, as far as the politics point, I, I, I should say, like, in terms of the inside baseball here, I, I would have to quibble a little bit with the premise. It's definitely the true that it's sort of like, I don't know, the online left and even like the New York Times and Vox, like they ended up all coming out and saying, hey, this Romney stuff's pretty good. It may need some changes around the edges, but like it's a good structure. Um, but the like institutional kind of Democratic Party and the center left as represented by places like Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, they were really down on Romney and like really mad at this Romney plan and mad at people like me for saying it was better than the Biden plan. And the Romney plan was like, you know, it's kind of a dead letter because of things that people don't even, stuff we aren't even talking about, stuff like the state and local tax deduction and stuff like that. Like, that's the stuff that Democrats really get worked up about. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that there was like, I don't know, like that there was a a place for people to join hands outside of the internet, which would have been nice because wouldn't it be lovely if we could do that on the internet? Um, but, you know. I just would throw a little cold water on it in that sense. Yeah, I, I think I think we've found somewhere where Matt and I agree. So that's <laughs> we have a little bell we can ding or something that as a sound effect that would be good. Um, <laughs> I'll get on that. You know, I I think he's he's right both in describing kind of the political uh, off the internet dynamic of this, um, both both on the sort of all the reasons the left of center wasn't actually jumping on it. And, and I think, you know, likewise, I, a lot of folks on the right of center obviously weren't happy with it. Um, I, I also agree with him on sort of his hierarchy of, of simplicities and, and share his disdain for the uh, kind of tax credit structure of everything um, and, and all the complication that, that, that introduces the, 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 the one twist I might add to it, and, and this goes back to my prior comment about um, kind of theorizing, is that when, when you're thinking about simplicity, particularly in political terms, the, the literally most technocratic, simplest thing isn't necessarily the simplest from a, a political perspective. And, and so that's, again, where I, I come back to this distinction between um, working families and, 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 and non-working families 
I, I think actually trying to sell um, in the American political context, the universal benefit that includes just completely unwinding welfare reform and saying we give unconditional cash to all families, um, you can believe in, in sort of the abstract state of nature, not yet formed nation that, that that's the way to go. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that's actually either politically plausible or even makes sense and sounds right to people here. And, and so, you know, I, I really think it's important, I, I guess I'm repeating myself to, to separate this and say, should we should we have a long fight about how we can make the safety net better? And should cash be a larger element of that? I, I, I'd love to, and, and maybe we should spend a couple minutes on it here because, you know, I, I also think there are tons of things wrong with the safety net and, and ways we could make it better. Um, but if we actually want to have any hope for something that, you know, is bipartisan, um, potentially going to sort of be widely understood and embraced within the country and become a kind of durable addition to the social compact, I think something more like what what we've posted at American Compass that says, here's a lot of help we can get to working families is, is the thing that, that has more promise. Um, and, and so I guess it's, it's sort of a, a direct question for Matt, like just as, as a legislative matter, almost like is, is, is the FISC, which, which we call our plan better than no FISC. Like if, if that's the policy that um, you could actually make progress on, is, is that something that, you, you would want to see progress made on, or do you see it as sort of actively impoverishing or, or harming people in the process? Uh, you know, it's always a tough question with sort of half measures. Can you make them full measures down the line? I mean, that would basically be the calculation would be, do I think that we could put this in and then like a year later s snap off that <laughs> exclusion of the poor? Um, because interestingly, that is where the child tax credit is going. I mean, none of us really like Biden like approach, but that thing's about to pass. Like it's it passed through the house, and it's gonna get through this COVID bill. I'm pretty sure. Um, so we're already about to see a benefit that is flows to even the poorest people in the country, at least nominally. Of course, there's gonna be a lot of difficulties for those folks in claiming that benefit because many don't file taxes and all the rest of it. But we're already gonna and, be there. Well, and we should say it's a one year thing. I think Democrats selling that as a permanent program a year from now would face. Oh yeah, yeah. Calculus. I'm sort of unclear. I mean, obviously they wanna make it a permanent thing, but I'm sort of unclear on how, uh, I don't know, the mechanics of that. Is that harder? Do they need 60 for that? I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, so we're at least gonna have one year of it. And of course we've had um, three checks. Well, we've had two checks. We're about to have a third um, that also went to people who, you know, I've never worked uh, with these stimulus checks. So I don't know. I'm interested. I don't know about the political dynamics of this. I think it's a little hard to say because the examples we have in the past, like AFTC, that was a, a benefit that only went to very poor people. And so that's a little bit different than a benefit that goes to everyone, including very poor people. I think you know, you're going to have a little bit of better go of the other of the universal one than you would like hyper focused on only non-working single mothers. Like that's a that's a real bad idea, like politically. Um, but the universal one, I think it could go because I think once it gets out there, you know, what would you do? You'd have to run some campaign in which you're like, hey, all these benefits you you guys get each month in your check in your account. Like I know you love them, but what if we 
like cut off like people, you know, like the bottom 5% of kids because they're not working or their parents aren't. I don't know. I just don't think people are going to go for it. I think once they're receiving it and they're happy with it, the fact that very poor people are also receiving it, I don't know that it's really going to grind their gears enough to want to, I don't know, mobilize to get rid of it in the same way a benefit that was only for the very poor, you know? Okay, yeah, so I, th I think that's an interesting conversation. But it, so let me summarize this and because then I do want to spend, or in as you teased out, it, some time talking about other areas of, of potential overlap, right? Um, but if I'm summarizing what I'm hearing, right, it's that, you know, the, the kumbaya dream of AOC and Steve King going on a joint hunger strike in the rotunda until the Romney pan uh, got passed, not going to happen. Uh, nice to think about, maybe. Um, certainly get some good video clips out of it. But we are going to get the Biden thing through. So we'll get to see how it goes for a year and and reassess from there. So we've staked out our, our positions and we can keep having the, the technical debates about it. But that seems like what's going to happen and we'll wait and see, right, as things develop. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, the way, the way I kind of view it is, okay, so the Biden thing's through. You know, we made some efforts to try to change it a little bit. Both I did, Romney did. You know, there was a little bit, they moved things a little bit around to try to make it a little bit more administratively better, but it wasn't. But as Orrin points out, it's going to be gone in a year. And there's an expectation from a lot of people that we want to make something like this permanent. So that's kind of where I see the next stage is to say, you know, in a way, because it's going to expire in a year, now we have a year to fight about what should the permanent thing look like. Should it look like what Oren is proposing? Should it look like what Romney's proposing? Should it look like what I'm proposing? Um, and, you know, I suspect there might be a lot of competing bills on this as people jump into the fray based on maybe Oren's uh, piece. I don't know if he's got some folks lined up or based on, on my proposal. And then, of course, there's going to be the people who are saying, let's just keep doing the Biden thing but make it permanent. Um, that's uh, how I see it. Like The next fight is how is this thing going to be made permanent? What What should it look like when we make this child benefit thing permanent, you know? Oren, would you agree? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think Matt's point about the, the political dynamic of, you know, if, well, if, if this is already going to be, if both sides are agreeing this should be out there for most people, what is the dynamic around the, the fight over the, the sort of contested group here? And is it, something where most Americans say, um, you know, hey, if we're doing this, let's just do it for everybody. Uh, or is it going to be something where people say, whoa, 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 what, <laughs> what, what are you talking about doing it for everybody? Um, and and I, I think that's sort of the, the central question. And so one piece of it will be folks making the affirmative, you know, persuasive arguments that it should be for everybody or it shouldn't be for everybody. And one piece of it will be a reaction to how that how, how that lands on the nation and, and what politicians think will and won't be popular. And, and as much kind of, um, you know, rightful complaints as there are about everything that's wrong with our democracy, it's, <laughs> I don't know, I, I look at this kind of issue and think like, this is probably the kind of thing that is is going to end up being fairly responsive to uh, to the sentiments of the country. Okay, All right. so that's a helpful summary. So let's spend some time um, 
talking about other areas that we could potentially sort of work together on. So, Orin, it sounded like you maybe had a couple ideas. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we you know we can get into sort of very wonky specifics. I think a, a place where I generally agree with with critiques that I've I've seen Matt certainly make of um, of, of the way the safety net operates today is that it's a mess. <laughs> I mean, it it is it is complicated and difficult to use. It has a lot of unnecessary phase outs and and uh, you know, bad incentives. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily provide the, the kinds of support people need in a lot of cases. And, and so, uh, you know, this is really where I started my career as a policy wonk was saying within the right of center, look, guys, anti-poverty policy isn't, it's not a budget fight about where we can find cuts. It, you know, we may need to have budget fights and talk about cuts <laughs> across the budget, but anti-poverty policy is about looking at the money that we are spending on fighting poverty and figuring out all sorts of ways we could surely do it better than we are. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think that's a debate we should have sort of, and, and a focus we should have on the merits independent of just, and I think we'll do a better job of it if we're not just sort of saying, well, just, let's just give everybody money instead. Um, I, I suspect where Matt and I will disagree, I'll just say my position on it. So is that I think a huge piece of success is is further localization. And I think a huge problem is that we've made it everything about the safety net, a, a kind of national fight about how to do it and how to design the programs. Um, whereas a lot of stuff I think would be much better done sending resources to state, local, and even kind of community non-government organizations to actually try to uh, deliver programs and services. On the localism point, I actually think there's an interesting divide here to get back to some degree to Oren's point about, you know, charity and civil society and you know, won't, won't this all be displaced by, by the central uh, government's money machine. I think that the money benefits um, more, really sort of welfare benefits more generally are usually like, definitely much better uh, administered on the national level. I mean, you look yes. at SNAP and Medicaid and UI, oh my God, it's just like really badly done. And I, you know, I suppose it could be done better, right? I mean, why, why couldn't a state do it better? They just don't ever seem to. Um, but and this is where I feel like the role for the local parts come in and maybe for some of the more kind of ch charitable minded and civic society minded and sort of, you know, religious community minded is there is a role for local, whether it's governments or nonprofit organizations or uh, just civil groups and clubs and whatever in helping people. But I think the way that they can help people are is a way that the government simply cannot, which is one-to-one -one connections, relationships, working with people, um, helping people, you know, on a, on a very kind of very niche basis. It's like very hard, you know, maybe someone does have a drug problem, like what can the government, you know, it's really, that's kind of something you're going to need someone there to help you with and maybe social workers, but it's a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but the money part, like in many ways, I feel like getting the money stuff set up really frees local groups to focus on the stuff they're going to be better at which is helping people in these kind of soft touch situations with sort of day-to-day -day problems and relationship issues and uh, addiction issues and stuff like that, that money doesn't really fix. And if you get them out of the business of having to try to collect cash so that they can keep people alive, you take care of that, 
then you free up the local groups to do what I think they're the best at. Yeah, I so I think this is probably a, a broad point of agreement on what you just said about the local kind of function, Matt, but also the point about sort of the the money distribution being a national function. You know, one one of the policies I work on a lot is the concept of a wage subsidy, and and I've always said, look, take the safety net put a whole bunch of that money into a wage subsidy that that absolutely makes sense to be administered nationally, but then take the other kinds of programs we're doing and, and ask what if that actually should be national versus at, at the local level. I, I think probably where we disagree in thinking about sort of how that support at the local level can function is that I, I think you, you really undermine it quite badly if you start from a pre-commitment that the sort of actual resource-related needs of the household are already going to be, have, you know, already going to be uh, fulfilled by the federal government. And and I know, you know, I, I jotted this down when you said it because it was it was again a striking example of how we think about things differently. You know, when I initially brought up the sort of local uh, role, and and you sort of kind of dismiss that as we shouldn't impoverish people so that local organizations have a thing to do something to do, which is just sort of an interesting definition of the default, right? It it doesn't strike me that declining to create some massive cash program is impoverishing people. People people are impoverished. The government determines impoverished. The government determines the distribution of income right through lawmaking, right? Well, in, to some extent, I mean, the market does as well, and obviously, the government the market's has created a role by in, the state, right? Sure, and the, <laughs> right, and, and the government has a role in in defining how the market operates. But but I don't think it's right to say, essentially, to use an active verb and say anybody in the world who is impoverished or in the country is impoverished, we have impoverished. There there are people who are impoverished, and at least in my view. We, we, we start with a world in which people are impoverished and ask, what should we do about it? So the fact that we haven't created a cash benefit from su- for someone already doesn't mean we have impoverished that person. And, and we, may, we may disagree on this point. I just I highlight it as sort of yeah. no, I think that's... Where, where starting from a different point then, then leads you to think differently. And, and so in my mind, it's not a matter of we should Im- – the federal government – denies a benefit, thereby impoverishing people, thereby sending them to local organizations. It's that there are impoverished people and local organizations can do a tremendous amount of effective work with them and they need resources to do that work. But in a lot of cases, I actually think trying to solve in advance any problem related to the impoverishment in a lot of cases is going to undermine um, the the ability of, of the organizations to actively kind of work with them. And and so I think there needs to, I think you want to have more of a direct linkage where the support and engagement at the local level is about both addressing the impoverishment and addressing problems in people's lives that that are contributing to the situation. Yeah, I do. I do want to dwell so, on that on that uh, just just a second, because I, I do yeah. think that's a good point. Like, because what Oren essentially does is he takes factor payments, payments to labor and capital, and he just kind of buries those as a kind of like baseline thing. It's like that's just a thing that exists, and then like state what, of nature sort of thing. And then whatever poverty uh, results from the distribution of factor payments, that is kind of like 
that's just normal poverty. And no one caused that. There was no cause of that. It's just, you didn't get the factor payment. I don't know. You know, you knew. own some more capital, <laughs> work some more hours. I guess that's on you. Um, but I think that's completely mistaken, right? Factor payments are just as much driven by government policy as anything else, right? The government creates economies. They create contract law. They create property law. They create the whole thing that drives the factor payment engine, right? They have courts. They have police. Like all, all that drives factor payments. And so I think what you want to do is take a step back and put a whole range of options on the table and say, okay, here's society number one. In society number one, the government has created a system in which income is only distributed according to factor payments and I guess separately through private transfers. And here's society number two. The government has decided, yeah, we're going to use factor payments for like a lot of the income, maybe like half of it, um, but we're also going to use other payments, non-factor payments for the other half of the income. And those non-factor payments would be payments to elderly people, disabled people, students, caregivers, unemployed people, and children, right? And you, you go, okay, if you pick option one, you know, and it's only factor payments, dude, you're going to have a lot of poverty because half the people don't receive factor payments. Those half of the people are not distributed evenly across families. Some families have like eight people who aren't receiving factor payments. Some families have no people who aren't receiving factor payments. You go that route, you know what's happening. You know what's going to happen. And if you pick option one over option two, that decision, you've made a pro-poverty decision, you know, that I think that's, I think, the correct way to view it. But, I mean, obviously, Warren disagrees. <laughs> well, I, this is, uh, I'm sorry, Tim, if, you, if you're if you trying to go elsewhere. No, 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 it, Warren, uh, respond, yeah. I, 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 I think this is such an, a, a great place to sort of, you know, wrap things up in a sense, because it, it, it does speak to kind of what is underlying so much of the disagreement and, and, you know, even just in the framing, I, you know, yes, in, in the economics classroom, we would talk about these as factor payments in, in society, we talk about them as earnings. Um, and, and the, the basis of the sort of democratic capitalist society in, in all sorts of ways is, is, is built around this assumption that um, people support themselves through their earnings. And that has all sorts of implications, some of which are economic, but many of which have to do with sort of our, our basic understanding of what people's obligations are to each other, to their families, to the society. And frankly, I think it, it, is, a, <laughs> it, it is a good setup. I, I think there are a lot of very desirable things about understanding that the distribution of income in the society and what people have is tied to what they are able to earn uh, in the market, which at the end of the day means what they are able to earn by doing something of value for someone else. Now, obviously, there are tons of problems with how that works, and more so than pretty much any other conservative, I'm, I'm very open to acknowledging and talking about all those failures, how we can address them, how we can have an economy that actually works and supports that system better for more people. But, but my sort of starting point and, and overarching goal is to say we want to have that be a system that works well because of how it effectively reinforces the cooperative community we have, which which is a a miracle and not something to be to be taken for granted in in human history. Uh, and then we identify exceptions where 
that model just isn't going to work and and we are going to need the government to step in in other ways as as Matt was describing and we should be open to doing that but the idea that families who have children is somehow just an inherent exception that that we shouldn't use this model as a starting point for um, I I think is a mistake. And so, again, thinking not just from the technocratic perspective, but also from the uh, how does a society actually function well perspective, I think a real focus on earnings and, and saying that where it can be, the support we provide is going to be tied to those earnings. And, and we recognize working and earning as a uh, meaningful and important thing that people do that is distinct from a state of being in a household that that doesn't do that, um, I, I think are things worth kind of recognizing the value of and, and trying to preserve as we make policy. Yeah, I would, I guess, let me, let me put a button on this as we're coming up on, on time. But as I'm looking back on our conversation, the areas that I think would be helpful to think about for the future and, and stake out, um, as we build out the project and what this is going to look like is just, again, I don't think we've solved or adequately considered the structural changes that are happening to that system as you describe it and our current institutional capacity to reckon with automation, AI, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to have to, you know, any, any catch up, whether you still want to say like, no, we we need to solve for specifics and, and still nudge people along those moral lines is going to still have this massive time delay um, between how rapidly things are shifting out there in the culture and the economy and the massive bureaucratic apparatus's ability to catch up. And it seems that that is going to, to leave people behind. And it, it just seems like that's ostensibly the focus that you guys are trying to chart out. And I'm just not sure we've solved for how quickly the technological pace is, is rendering some of the ways we have of capturing the traditional sort of full-time work model. Um, in a way that these interventions can can really get at the heart of things. So I'm, I'm putting that on my to-do list for our future conversations, but guys, before we wrap up any closing, any closing shots, let's, let's give you each a couple minutes to, to put your own button on it. Anything you want to plug, how we can follow uh, what's going on in the future. Matt, let's start with you. Oh uh, yeah. You can follow my work at peoplespolicyproject.org. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know that I have much to say. You know, I guess I'll just sum it up again. You know, I, in my view, uh, you know, uh, ev- everyone should receive an income um, for workers. That's paychecks for uh, owners. That's uh, dividends, interest, rents. I actually don't think that they should receive that, but we'll put that aside for now. Um, and uh, but for non-workers, that's of course some kind of welfare benefit, whether that's student benefits, unemployment benefits, child benefits. And I think if you do that, you're going to have a nice equal low poverty society not fully equal there still will be variation based on how much you work and uh, uh, that will provide plenty of incentive to work Um, but if you make sure everyone at least gets some kind of basic payment um, including every kind of non-worker in society 
I think you, you go a long way to having a nice, stable, egalitarian uh, society, which, as far as we can tell from other countries, does not seem to be uh, especially um, damaging to uh, work or, or family or, or anything like that. Um, so I don't see any reason not to do it. And I think a lot of the arguments that uh, Cass provides for not doing it actually either apply to his own proposal because he's also proposing giving a lot of benefits to children that exceed anything that their parents earn in the labor market. They either apply to his own proposal or they're super, super narrow and focused only on sort of like the encouragement to work stuff, which really just seems kind of mostly irrelevant empirically. And also, like I said before, seems sort of under theorized. Like I don't think Cass is going to say that um, someone, uh, you know, uh, uh, a woman who's 20 years old in college and gets pregnant and uh, decides to have a kid that uh, she should be excluded from child benefits because she decides that she wants to finish her degree while she's taking care of her kid. I don't think he would say something like that or would say that elderly parents shouldn't get it or disabled parents shouldn't get it. Like he really has in mind a very, very, very niche group of people uh, that he doesn't want to give it to. Um, and but his policy is not designed to target those people. It ends up hitting lots of people that he probably doesn't want to hit. And it's just much better to not worry about these just handful of people that you super duper don't like and make sure all kids get some kind of benefit. And then to the extent that you want to fix other problems in society, fix those problems. You know, encourage people to marry if that's what you want. Encourage people to work. Help people if they have problems with addiction. Do those things. That doesn't require, I think, starving them out of cash. So. Matt Brunig of the People's Policy Project. Thanks for joining. Oren. Yeah, well, uh, thank you guys both for this. It's been fantastic. And I maybe this is surprising to say, hopefully not. I, you know, I, I love Matt's work because I think he does such a great job sort of stripping away all of the noise in a lot of these debates and getting to the actual kind of core arguments, which has therefore allowed us here to, to really focus on those. And I think hopefully listeners will come away really understanding how it is that that two people who both are focused on uh, developing policy that's that's going to help folks up and down the income spectrum can can end up then with uh, with with very different assumptions and, and conclusions about what uh, what the best way to do that might be. Um, you know, I guess the sort of two brief closing thoughts on on the policy. One is, you know, to, to the point Matt just made, um, th there is an interesting question with any policy of, of who's included and who's not. And, and I think it's actually important to make those distinctions as opposed to say, well, it would just be easier to not have any. Uh, I think it's policymaking is a lot about thinking about those issues. And so, you know, as, as Matt ran through the list, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that that a college student who who gets pregnant and, and still wants to complete her degree should should then be eligible for uh, for for the child payments. Fortunately, there are a, an, an enormous another range of other uh, supports out there in the world that uh, that that would likely be accessible to her. And uh, so, as we as we talk about any given policy, I think it's it's really important to remember that that they operate in in that larger context, and it's not a matter of if this specific policy doesn't meet all your needs, then then starvation uh, is is the only thing that's left. Um, and and then the second thing I would say, just kind of coming back to Tim, the point you, you made in closing is I, I think it's a great point that there are you know many other things changing in the world and, and automation and, and AI and so forth. 
the, the reality is that we don't actually see those impacts necessarily in, in, in the labor market to, to a significant extent degree. And, and, and this is something that, you know, I've done a lot of research on and, and I'll be the first to acknowledge that if someday robots have taken all the jobs, then, then we're going to, then we're certainly going to have to come up with a different answer. I would just caution against sort of preemptively worrying that the robots are going to take all the jobs and therefore uh, sort of thinking that we need to to change our approach to everything as, as opposed to a lot of the work that we do at American Compass, which is asking, how can we pursue the kinds of reforms that are actually going to ensure we, we do still have an economy where where everybody can can earn a good living and, and support a family. And so uh, that's that's a lot of what, what we're up to. And uh, we're at AmericanCompass.org. 